Well, I'm going to get immediately into the lesson tonight, uh, and we'll get moving along here. Uh, One of the most memorable trips I believe that any individual can take is to our nation's capital. Now, that's from my perspective. And if I were so fortunate to be chosen uh, to be over the Department of Education, there would be some changes. Um, And one of the requirements would be that every high school student, before they could receive a diploma, they must visit our nation's capital. And they must stand before the walls of and read the names of those who's given their life for their freedom. They would be required to visit Arlington National Cemetery and observe that hallowed ceremony and to stand in the actual boxcar that took Jews to Dachau in Auschwitz and hauled them off to the guest chambers. Yes, they would be required to visit our national monuments. And then they would be required to write a report when they got back on exactly expressing with their own understanding our nation's history and the sacrifices of past generations and offer a better worldview than what we have. But the one area in which you're never going to hear talked about or visited or mentioned is going to be the Anacosia section of Washington, D.C. This is an area that's comparable to South L.A., South Dallas, or South Chicago. The Anacosia section of Washington, D.C., it sits on a bluff overlooking the uh, capital city. It's just across from the imposing capital itself. Anacosia is a ghetto. It's a ghetto of hunger, of crime, of drugs, of homelessness, of carjackings, and helplessness, and hopelessness. And the capital itself, it may as well be a continent away. None of Washington's elites or the power brokers or the reporters for the mainstream media, they're not going to cross that natural divide. However, one balmy June morning in 1981 proved to be the exception. Black limos, TV cameras lined the curb in front of the old red brick Assumption Catholic Church in the very heart of Anacosia. And soon after the cameras and the reporters were in place, a small group of nuns and priests arrived, clustered about the wisp of a woman in a white Indian sari. The tiny figure, she moved with grace up the steps of the church, waving at the children nearby and brushing past the reporters that were crowding the doorway. This celebrity, 
exhibited an attitude that is unheard of in a city that thrives itself on pomp and protocol and importance. Who was she? She was a 70-year-old Albanian nun named Teresa Bahakshu, better known as Mother Teresa. 1979, Nobel Prize winner, a world-famous figure, and yet she could have commanded an airport welcome. She could have addressed Congress itself. She could have attracted thousands upon thousands at one of the great cathedrals in the city of Washington, D.C. Instead, she went as inconspicuous as possible to a troubled and neglected corner of the city to establish an outpost for nine of her sisters of charity. Now, since Mother Teresa wouldn't come to them, the power brokers, the lobbyists, the union heads, well, they had to come to her. The mayor, the city officials, they trailed the press into the dark church hall with its chipped and cracked plaster and its faded painted walls. But the press, oh, they had their questions ready. What do you hope to accomplish here? Someone shouted. Just the joy of loving and being loved. She smiled, her eyes sparkling in the face of the camera lights. Oh, that takes a lot of money, doesn't it? Another reporter threw out the obvious question. You see, everything in Washington costs money. And the more it costs, well, the more important apparently it is. The more attention it receives. Kind of reminded of Bill Back Better. <laughs> but Mother Teresa shook her head. No, doesn't require a lot of money. It requires a lot of sacrifice. The press was bewildered. Everyone who comes to Washington, they have these grand plans, usually involving the creation of agencies with armies of bureaucrats. I mean, that's what the city is for. You know, setting agendas, passing laws, remaking America, government influence in every walk of life, organizing these powerful departments, and then they trumpet it all out to the press with a cold live news conference. But here, this woman, 70-year-old woman, with her weathered, wrinkled face, she talked about sharing suffering and caring that people could live and die with dignity. She didn't have any grandiose scheme. Her message was simple. Do something for someone else, for the sick, for the unwanted, for the crippled, for the heartbroken, for the aged, the homeless, for those who are alone. Strange words indeed from Washington's hubris-minded commentators who left the conference just shaking their heads. Well, like them, the world could not understand the source of Mother Teresa's strength. Though her words sounded naive, something extraordinary happened wherever Mother Teresa went, whether it was Calcutta or whether it was Washington. And it's what the Bible calls pure religion and undefiled. It's found in James 1.27. 
pure religion and undefiled before God. And the Father is this, to visit. Well, that means to address the needs, to do something about it, to offer help, to reach out in compassion to the fatherless, to the widows, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. But why she did, what she did, well, that's the point that I really want to make tonight. Mother Teresa was not in love with a cause. Rather, as noble as her cause was, rather, she loved God. And she was dedicated to living His life and not her own. And that is holiness. It is complete surrender of self in obedience to the will and the service of God. Or as Mother Teresa summed it up, it's just complete acceptance of the will of God. Now, Mother Teresa's definition may sound rather nebulous. You know, to many Christians, and why is that? Because childhood, since childhood, we have associated holiness with this long string of do's and don'ts. Separation, isolation, cloisters. But seeing holiness only as rule keeping, well, what happens is that breeds serious problems. Let me explain. First of all, one of the problems is it limits the scope of true biblical holiness, which must affect every aspect of our lives. And secondly, even though there are rules may be biblically based, what we'd end up doing is obeying the rules rather than just obeying God. I mean, concern with the letter of the law causes us to lose the spirit of the law. And then thirdly, rule-keeping deludes us into thinking that somehow we can be holy through our own efforts. But there can be no holiness apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and quickening us. That means making us alive through conviction of sin and bringing us by grace to Christ in sanctifying us. For it is grace that causes us to even want to be holy. And then, last of all, our pious efforts. Well, you know, sometimes they can become so ego-gratifying as if holy living was some type of a spiritual beauty contest. Now, such self-centered spirituality, in turn, well, that leads to self-righteousness. And that's the very opposite of the selflessness that is holiness. Holiness is much more than a set of rules against sin. Holiness must be seen as the opposite of sin. Holiness is conformity to the character of God. And it is obedience to the will of God. Conforming to the character of God, that's separating ourselves from sin, reaching out to God, is in essence the very meaning of biblical holiness. And it is the foundation covenant, the central theme that is running all throughout Scripture. The earliest call to holiness 
Well, that soon came after Moses had led Israel out of Egypt. You know, they went through the parted waters of the Red Sea, safe at last from the Egyptian army, this unruly horde of humanity, 600,000 men and women and children, well, they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. There, God calls Moses up to the mountaintop and He instructs him in the laws by which His chosen people were to live. Now, these laws, they range from the all-encompassing Ten Commandments as we know them. I mean, right on down to the means of restitution for stolen animals. That's found in Exodus chapter 20. When the Israelites accepted God's covenant with the words, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. We will obey. Well, God again then called Moses back up to the mountaintop where he made one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible. God said, I will consecrate the tent of meeting. I will consecrate the altar. And I will dwell among the Israelites. Exodus 29, 44 and 45. Now think about that for a moment. It's a staggering thought. The sovereign God of the universe promises to pitch His tent, to actually to dwell in the midst of His chosen people. Now, what happens so often when we're reading along in the Bible is we reach, you know, Exodus 30 and it begins to get a little boring talking about the tabernacle. And so we skip on through and and we certainly are not going to read numbers. And we just miss it all together. The tabernacle reflects a holy God. A God that is set apart. Unique. Utterly unstained by the sin of the world. No wonder God specified rules for cleanliness for those who worship there. It's not because God had some obsession somehow with being hygienically clean, but because in every way possible, He wanted His people who come there to worship to be set apart, to be holy as they entered into the place of worship where He, a holy God, actually dwelt. And this is indeed the very heart of the relationship that God demands of His people. It's expressed in the covenant, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11 and 44. So understanding the basic covenant of the character of God, the character of God has not changed. And nor has His expectation of holiness from His people. The same remarkable promise that God made to Moses, that He would pitch His tent and dwell among His people, it's a central theme running all throughout Scripture. When you come to the New Testament, In the Gospels, John chapter 1, verse 14, with regard to Jesus, He said, the Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwell literally means to pitch a tent. Haven't we all heard Randy speak on that a time or two? I know I have. 
So here is now God coming to pitch His tent among His people. And then to carry the theme to its conclusion, John describes the end time, the new heaven and earth, and he, he writes it out this way. He says that the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell with them, and they shall be His people. Revelation 21 and 3. So the word dwell literally means to pitch a tent. So there you have it from Exodus to Revelation. There's this identical imagery of God. He's pitching His tent among His people. First in the tabernacle, then in Christ, then Christ in us, and ultimately in the eternal kingdom. Now, I want to say a word about salvation. And I want you to hear me quite clearly. Salvation, therefore, is not simply a matter of being separated from our past sins, and freed from the bondage to sin. Salvation means also that we are to be connected to a holy God. By pitching His tent among us, then God identifies with us through His very presence. The reality of a God who is here, He's personal. He's in our midst. And that is an extraordinary assurance. And it's one which distinguishes the Judeo-Christian faith from all the other religions of the world. But God demands something in return for His presence. He demands that we identify with Him. That we be holy because He is holy. Now, when we pray and we request His presence among us, we are to be in agreement and in acceptance with His holiness. It's not so many times our request for God's presence just another way of asking for a sign or a miracle. Holiness is not an option. God will not accept our indifference to His central command. It is the central covenant and command of Scripture. It's the cardinal point upon which all of Christianity turns. So, what does this really mean to us and for us in the real world in which we live every day? Holiness is obeying God even when it's against our own interest. Holiness is sharing God's love when it's inconvenient. Sharing God's love when it's inconvenient reminds me of a story that I read of Joyce Page. Joyce Page lives in St. Louis, Missouri. She's a mother of six. She leaves work every day at noon. She has one hour for lunch. But she's already prepared a peanut butter sandwich. She eats it on the way as she heads in that one hour as she goes to the St. Louis County Correctional Institute. Joyce has been doing this for years. We must understand that our goal as believers is to seek to do what we can to please God, not what God can do for us. 
Now, personal victories may come. But they are the result and not the object. True Christian maturity, holiness, sanctification is God-centered. So-called victorious Christian living that is often preached, it's taught, you can hear it in any evangelical church in America. When you think about it, it is self-centered. You ever gone to a Christian bookstore? Gone over there to the section? I mean, they got shelves that are filled with books offering victorious Christian living. You ever picked one up and read it? Have you ever gone through the table of contents? They offer victorious Christian living by every means possible. And often it's all about how I can get God to do something for me. I came to a time in my own life when I needed to give serious thought to face up to my responsibility for holiness. See, too often for me it was convenient to say, Oh, I'm defeated by this sin. Or I'm defeated by that sin. No, I wasn't. I came to the realization. I wasn't defeated. I was simply being disobedient. And I came to the conclusion that it would be good if I just stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe my progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. The Christian life begins with obedience. It depends on obedience and it results in obedience. We can't escape it. Did not our commander-in-chief declare that whoever has my commandments and obeys, obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Loving God, really loving Him, means living out His commands no matter what the cost. Now, I've tried to demonstrate this to us in four different lessons. In the first lesson, if you recall, it was the story of Eric Hill. Remember the man he left home and down in Florida had some kind of a vision? He was to go pick up trash along the interstate in San Antonio. Gone for 16 years. His sister Debbie desperately went looking for him. And that was in the lesson, The God Who Follows Us All the Days of Our Life. Psalms 23 and 4. I told you the story of Boris Cornfield. Remember the Russian doctor that was imprisoned in the Russian gulag in Siberia? But through his obedience and becoming a Christian, that actually led to his death over a loaf of stolen white bread by an orderly. But through his death, Dr. Cornfield influenced and led to the conversion of Alexander Sosinson, which became an outspoken critic and one who informed us of what really went on in those Russian gulags. Then, last time, I shared the story with you of eight airmen who were all shot down in Vietnam beginning in 1966. And in that story, how that those eight men, eight different men, they just represented 
the thousands who were shot down. But they were imprisoned for six years and tortured and beaten. And I shared that with you. But how they found a way to continue to read the Bible, to find the Bible, to have communion, and to have church services. All in obedience to God. And now, tonight in the life of Mother Teresa. Max Lucado, who is a writer and minister, he has a major ministry down in San Antonio. He has a worldwide following. While living in Miami, Florida, though, in 1979, he shared this account. He said, I happened to receive an invite to a Catholic church in downtown Miami. It was 1979. I arrived at the small sanctuary. It was overflowing with people. I was stunned the event wasn't advertised. I showed up a few minutes early expecting to get a front row seat. Well, I was stunned. What happened was, I should have arrived two hours early. People packed every pew and aisle. Some sat in the windowsills. I found a spot at the back of the wall and I just waited. The windows were open. The south coast air was stuffy. The audience was chatty and restless. And yet, when she entered the room, all stirring stopped. There was no music. There was no long introductions like we've come to expect at a spirit-filled gathering or at a pastor's conference. There was no fanfare from public officials, no shirt tails hanging out, no skinny jeans, no fog machines, no variable light shows, no entourage. Just three, maybe four, younger versions of herself, the local priest and her. The father issued a brief word of welcome and he told a joke about placing a milk crate behind the lectern so that the guest could be seen and heard. He positioned it and she stepped up. Those big blue eyes looked out onto the audience and what a face. Vertical lines chiseled around her mouth. Her nose larger than most women would prefer. Thin lips as if drawn with a pencil, but a smile that was naked of pretense. She wore a characteristic white Indian sari with a blue border that represented the missionaries of charity, the order that she had founded in 1950. Sixty-nine years old at the time, her bent frame was already having problems. But there was nothing small about Mother Teresa. Give me your unborn children, she offered. Don't abort them. If you can't raise them, I will. They are precious to God. Who would have ever thought that this slight Albanian woman would become a world changer? Born in a cauldron of strife in the Balkans. Shy and introverted as a child. A fragile health. One of three children. Daughter of a generous but unremarkable businessman. And yet somewhere along her journey... She became convinced that Jesus walked in the distressing guise of the poor. And she set out to love Him by loving them. In 1989, she told a reporter that her missionaries of charity had picked up around 54,000 people 
from the streets of Calcutta, and 23,000 had died in their care. I wonder, did God create people like Mother Teresa so He can prove His point? See, you can do something on your life's journey. It will outlive you. And there's several billion reasons to consider His challenge. You know, some of these challenges, they live in our own neighborhoods. You can meet them at the grocery store. Others, well, they live in a jungle. You can't pronounce the names you can't pronounce. Some of them play in cardboard slums. Some sell sex on the Internet. Some of them walk for three hours for water or wait all day for a shot of penicillin. Others just hope for a COVID vaccine. Some are stranded at our southern border. They're separated from family. Now, some of them brought their woes on themselves, and others inherited the mess from their family, from their parents. But others just suffer as a result of inefficiencies in American aid or political warfare. None of us can help everyone, but all of us can help someone. And when we help them, we serve Jesus. Now, why would we want to miss a chance like that? Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me into your home. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four to 36. I want to share one final story. This story ties together all that I have said. It's a true story. The woman's name is Patty Awan. I think you'll be moved by hearing her story. In a well-known church in the Metroplex, no one was surprised when Patty Awan stood during an informal praise time at the Sunday evening service. A young Sunday school teacher with an air of quiet maturity. She had given birth to a healthy son just a few months earlier, a first child for her and her husband, Javi. The congregation settled back for a report of the baby's progress and his parents' thanksgiving. They were totally unprepared for what followed. Hanging on to the podium before her, Patty began. Four years ago this week, a young girl sat crying on the floor of a New Jersey apartment, devastated by the news of a lab report, unmarried and alone. She had just learned she was pregnant. The congregation grew completely quiet, and Patty's tear-choked voice indicated just who that young woman was. I considered myself a Christian at the time, she continued. I found out about Christ while I was in the drug scene. But after I learned about Him, I knew I wanted to commit myself to Him. But I couldn't give up my old friends. And I couldn't give up my old habits. So here I was drifting between two worlds. In one, I'm still smoking dope every day. And I'm sleeping with the man in the apartment above mine. 
In the other, well, I'm going to church. I'm witnessing to others. And I'm even working with the church, the church youth group. But being pregnant, well, that ripped through the hypocrisy of my double life. Oh, I've been meaning to get right with God, but I just kept slipping back. And now I couldn't live a nice, clean Christian life like all those other church people. I felt the only answer was to just wipe the slate clean. I would get an abortion. And no one in the church, well, they'd never know. And who'd know the difference anyway? The clinic scheduled an abortion date. I was terrified. My boyfriend was adamant. My sister, she was furious with me being so stupid as to get pregnant. And finally, in desperation, I just wrote to my parents. They were staunch Catholics. I knew they would support me if I decided to have the baby. My mother called me. She said, if you don't get an abortion, I don't want to see you while you are pregnant. Your life will be ruined and you'll deserve it. Well, I'd always been desperately dependent on other people. But now I knew this was one decision I was going to have to make alone. I was looking out my bedroom window one night when I thought clearly for the first time in weeks. And I realized that either I believed this Christianity or I didn't believe it. And if I believed in Christ, then I couldn't do this. God is real though. Even though I never lived like He was. And that decision for me was the point of no return. I put my faith in the God of the Bible, not in the God that I'd made up in my head. Now, I was still everything I never wanted to be. Pregnant, alone, deserted by family, rejected by the one that I loved. And yet, for the first time in my life, I was really peaceful. Because I knew for the first time, I was being obedient. When I went to the obstetrician, I told him of my decision to have the baby and why I had made that choice. And he refused to charge me for the prenatal care and the delivery. I confessed my double life to the church and through the support of Christians, I was able to move away from my old friends to an apartment of my own. I began going to a Christian counseling agency Thank you to the Lisa Barbers of the world. Thank you to my brother Jerry Stettheimer, who's been doing professional Christian counseling for 50 years. But she said, I felt God leading me to give the baby up for adoption. I had a beautiful baby girl. Her name was Sarah. She was placed with a childless Christian couple. And we all felt God's hand in the decision. And so, Patty said, I praise, that's why I praise God this evening. I thought in the depths of my despair that my life was ruined. But I knew that I had to at least be obedient in taking responsibility for my sin. But today, because of that very despair and because of that obedience, I have what I never thought I could have. I have a godly husband. We have a baby of our own. But what matters more than anything is I have what I was searching desperately for. Peace with God. I have tried 
to answer what is holiness. Holiness is obeying God no matter what. Here's how the Bible defines holiness. Let us purify ourselves from everything that defiles our body, our spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. This is the true essence of loving God. I've answered the question four different ways. Remember the question that I asked my class back in 1990? Take out a sheet of paper. Don't write your name on it. Just simply write what it means to you in your own words. What does it mean to love God? I shared their responses with you in that lesson. But if loving God only means to go to church and give a tithe, or answering the question is, well, I need to think about it, somehow we're missing the real meaning of having a relationship with God. Be holy. Consecrate yourself and be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, tonight, we desire to worship You in the beauty of Your holiness. Only You are holy. And yet You've called us who believe in You to be holy just like You. We can only be holy by following the leading of Your Holy Spirit in us. We welcome You to lead us. To begin tonight to Help us to rid ourselves of anything and everything in our life that is less than holy. Show us how to pursue holiness like you've said in your word to do. Holy Spirit, I ask you tonight to crowd out everything in us that is not holy so that the beauty of your holiness would beautify us in every possible way. You are the well from which we draw holiness. So help us to spend time with you every day for the fresh release of your Holy Spirit in us that enables us to live a holy, obedient life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Okay.